Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about J.D. Greer's comments about Black Lives Matter. And then I'm going to ask Ian about his Facebook posts this week. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, happy Friday and welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us. Uh, as always, find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. You can find us online at 1160hope.com and our podcast. Wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, review, uh can't uh, tell you enough about how how pleased we are with the interviews we were able to do over the past two weeks uh, and would love for you to go back to listen to those. Well, Ian, it's Friday. And uh, last night, I don't know uh, how your church functions, but last night we actually recorded our service for Sunday. So I have like a case of the Mondays a little bit. Like I feel like I, I'm going to I'm going to stumble over a lot of words today, which some people may not think is that out of the ordinary. Oh, you record them on Thursday, do you? Not usually, but this week we had to do a little earlier. We had Interesting. To do a little yeah, we so. currently do Saturday mornings, but we're yep. in uh, conversations about moving them to Mondays, actually. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, reason or just to have a full week for pe- for the uh, team to put it all together? Yeah, it's not only for the – I mean, it doesn't take that long to just have it ready to go, but to be maybe more creative with some of uh, some of the – production side to create maybe even promotional stuff leading up to it uh yeah it's it's certainly it's certainly a work in progress right now i don't think there's one magic solution but i know doing it on saturday mornings and then having to have it ready for sunday is a pretty that's a pretty quick turnaround for our team for sure it is we've actually been doing it saturday as well but this week we had to do thursday and so it's just weird to wake up friday and be like wait i've already preached and like oh okay trying to figure stuff out right right (laughs) Uh, and so if I stumble over my words today, you're going to need to carry us. I would I would very much appreciate that today. <laughs> my pleasure. Again, you're thinking to yourself, and how is that different from the normal days? <laughs> I, I didn't say that. I didn't say that at all. We've been together long enough. I can read your mind on that one. Oh, is that what it is? Hey, I, I wanted to ask you, let's jump into the deep end. J.D. Greer, who yep. we quoted yesterday, I believe. Uh, J.D. Greer has been really out front, not just as the pastor of uh, Summit Church in North Carolina, that is a huge church with lots of church plants, lots of campuses, but he is also uh, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so J.D. Greer, uh, his voice is a very important one in the evangelical world right now. And he's really been um, challenging, I would say, a lot of uh, kind of the Southern Baptist traditions. Yesterday, we talked about him removing the honorary gavel that they use because uh, at all their meetings, because it, it was named after a former slave owner. Yeah. Uh, at the Christian Post, J.D. Greer, uh, they quote uh, a video that he does in which he endorses Black Lives Matter as a gospel issue, but denounces the organization. I want to read a little bit of it. And then I'm curious, just your thoughts, because I, I don't know if you've had this conversation with people. I've certainly had it with a few people. I'm curious if you think that that's an OK distinction. So let me read this. Uh, President of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, endorsed the Black Lives Matter movement as a gospel issue to members of the world's largest Baptist denomination Wednesday. But he denounced the Black Lives Matter organization that sparked the movement in 2013. Greer made the endorsement during an SBC presidential address in which he told Southern Baptists that disagreeing with the worldview of the Black Lives Matter organization doesn't make the issue Black Lives Matter untrue. Uh, He said, Black Lives Matter, Greer said, 
after acknowledging the SBC's racist past and highlighting the denomination's growing diversity. I realize he said that the movement and the website have been hijacked by some political operatives whose worldview and policy prescriptions would be deeply at odds with my own, but that doesn't mean that the sentiment behind it's untrue. I do not align myself with the organization, but he goes on later to say, I do align myself with the ideal and I want us all to. Uh, Wondering if anyone's asked you about that, because I had a somewhat of a heated phone call with somebody over this, but wondering if you've run into this distinction, people wanting to talk about this, and if you think this is an okay distinction that Greer's making here. No, no, this is the this is the first I'm hearing of it, Brian. I don't I don't know what you're talking I think, about. I know your sarcastic voice. I know your sarcastic voice. <laughs> I hope so. I'm laying it on pretty thick. Uh, yeah, yep. I, I think it's actually a pretty decent distinction. You know, Dave Dummett, the new uh, senior pastor at Willow Creek. And Albert Tate, who is the uh, founding pastor of a church, I think it's Fellowship Church in Mississippi, they did a sort of Q&A Facebook Live a couple of days ago. And as Albert Tate often does, he just is really good at like reducing things into sound bites. He said something like, I, I can align with Black Lives Matter, the declaration without supporting the organization. And I thought, oh, that's pretty good. That's, that's I, I think, in a, a distinction that is probably... I think it should be helpful. It is interesting how many people have, um, because sometimes you can tell the questions aren't like real questions. They're like meant yep. to be traps or they're, yep. they're, you know, you can tell that someone's really heated or they're looking for a fight or that's not even in the majority of the cases, but you can tell. Uh, I think the distinction he makes is actually really significant, but it has been some of the pushback that we've seen that to even say the phrase yep. somehow assumes that we're then perfectly aligned with the organization I've I've been sent a lot of screenshots like, well, you said this. Did you know that the organization said this? Really? Like, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff in the organization that I don't align with necessarily or agree with or affirm. But the the phrase itself still stands, and I don't I don't I don't I don't personally see an issue with that. But it would be curious to know what kind of feedback you've gotten from people that are like, no, you can't make the statement without full alignment with the organization behind it. So one of the people that I was talking to about it, I would say kind of how you were saying was using that argument to try to um, cut kind of the legs out from the protest at all. Do you know what I mean? Like sure. it was a little conspiracy theory. It's like, hey, this is being funded by these people. And therefore, and I, I said, you know, uh, I exactly what you just said. I think it is completely legitimate to say. Uh, I believe fully in the statement without the organization. And I you know some people probably disagree with that, but I think it is completely legitimate. Um, and I think we do that often with things. Uh, let me tee you up here because I, I know your thoughts on this, but uh, <laughs> Greer, Greer saying Black Lives Matter is a gospel issue, that, that the statement, he believes in the statement because it's a gospel issue. Uh, I'm fairly uh, confident you're going to agree with that. But could you explain that for people who are like, how is that a gospel issue? Yeah, we've talked about this a number of times the last couple of weeks, and most of our guests have done a far better job articulating it than than either of us have. But the reason I think that it's a gospel issue, and especially for the people that want to come back and say all lives matter, I would say, of course, all lives matter. But there's a particular demographic that has been more under the boot of the quote unquote empire than than maybe other demographics. And so part of the gospel issue is an Imago Dei issue first, that all humans are made in the image and likeness of God with this innate God-given dignity and worth. And the other aspect that I think is, maybe we'll talk about later in the show, it's not just like, yeah, yeah, everyone has dignity. So why are we even singling out black people or a black demographic? It's, it's also recognizing that 
Jesus stands with marginalized, oppressed people. He's, he's constantly showing us this. So to simply say, well, yeah, what what are they complaining about? We all we all matter. I can affirm that statement. I think that's part of where people get uncomfortable when we say, yeah, but but this particular people group or this particular demographic uh, has experienced not just like individual one on one bigotry, but has also been a part of and you and I have been a part of as well. But they've been the recipients of a a system slighted against them in a lot of circles and a lot of places. And that's probably a Pandora's box for me to even say that alone. But I would encourage you to go back and listen to some of the interviews from the yes. last couple of weeks because they do a, good, a really good job of kind of expounding on what we mean by systemic or structural racism that for a lot of my white brothers and sisters, that, that might be the first time that we're hearing about it. And I would definitely encourage you to reserve your judgments even on that statement and and do some reading. Yeah. Uh, Greer gave me one more point that I want to highlight as we close out this segment, because I did not know this statistic. And this is reason, I think, for us to celebrate. He said, a lot of people don't know that, but nearly 20 percent of all Southern Baptist churches are majority non-white and that the North American Mm. Mission Board tells us, listen to this stat, that more than 60 percent of new churches being planted recently have been planted and led by people of color. Wow. Uh, and so that's a really impressive statement there, a uh, statistic for the Southern Baptist Convention. So you can find this article that kind of highlights what J.D. Greer shared with the Southern Baptist Convention. We'd love to know your thoughts. Go ahead and do that at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we're going to do something dangerous. We're going to dive into the treasure trove that is the Facebook page of my co-host, Ian Simpkins. Yikes. We're going to do that next here on The Common Good, <clears throat> AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Friday afternoon. Uh, We often point you to our Facebook page, which is The Common Good Radio Show. At our Facebook page, the show page, you can see the articles we've discussed. You can interact with other listeners or with us sometimes and continue the conversation. Uh, But I want to go somewhere else on Facebook for this segment. I want to go to the Facebook page of Ian Simpkins. Are you, are you good with doing this, Ian? That's dangerous, man. I don't, I don't even know what post you're going to ask me about. So this, this might go downhill fast, but we'll, we'll find out. Well, I am not trying to butter you up, but uh, whereas my Facebook page is generally like an occasional picture of my kids and that's about it. Sure. uh, You've been, you've been all over it this week with a lot of really good stuff. So what I thought was instead of just doing one post and talking about it for, you know, eight, nine minutes, let's just run through a bunch of them. Give me, you know, kind of a two minute thought process behind here's what I was thinking. Here's what that means. Here's why I thought it was important to share something like that. You you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Two hours ago or a couple hours ago, I should say, (laughs) uh, you wrote, if our learning doesn't result in greater humility, we may have grown in knowledge, but we haven't matured in wisdom. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I think there's a couple of places in scripture that actually talk about knowledge puffing up. And it's been something I've been really convicted by not only just in the last couple of weeks and reading and learning and watching and listening, but also, you know, I've mentioned a couple of times I'm in grad school and I don't know if this is everyone's experience with grad school. Every passing week, I'm like more and more humbled by how little I actually know. Like it's, yeah. it, it feels like with every class and every book, you're like, wow, there is so, I'm so grateful for this experience, but I'm also realizing there's just a vast mountain of information I don't know anything about. And I don't know. Like, I find that the people that I most admire, particularly in pastoral leadership, are the ones that the older they get, 
yeah. the, more, the more like open handed they are with like their, I don't know, their doctrinal certainty and this like airtight, like, no, 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 man, there's so much to learn and so much to know. And I think scripture also does talk a lot about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge isn't bad, obviously, and I hope that doesn't come across in the post, but like, man, no, what we're learning that. and reading and experiencing is like giving us a big head. I, I don't, I just don't think that's the goal. And I don't think it's like helpful for humanity. It should, it should lead us to a, a humbling posture that I think is like the prerequisite for like real lasting wisdom. I think who knows? I could be wrong. The next one's fire. Here we go. Yesterday, 942 AM standing with the oppressed and the marginalized is not one of many options in a gospel buffet. It is central axial, the very meal itself. It's what Jesus did and does for us. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I, I, you and I both have heard a lot of comments from churches and church leaders when it comes to issues of like, quote unquote, social justice or whatever phrase you want to use, you know, standing with marginalized, oppressed people. We're like, ah, that's not really our thing. We don't want to distract from yeah. the gospel. Like that's that's that other churches down the streets thing. That's their that's their bread and butter. There's a lot of the imagery that we're given about exactly what Jesus does for us seems to convey that we were the ones while we were dead in our sin, we're the ones that were marginalized. We're the ones that were like under the boot of sin, death and destruction. And Jesus enters into that, comes alongside us. And so I think not only is that like a central gospel soteriology issue, it is also something that as a result, then as Christ followers, we don't just get to simply quote, like preach the gospel, but we'll let all the like social justice junkies kind of deal with loving people and caring right. for people and coming alongside people and speaking truth to power. I think they go, I think they go hand in hand, to be honest. All right. June the 10th. This is, <laughs> this is good, man. It's like drinking from a fire hose. I'm oh enjoying boy. this. Oh boy. Uh, if you hate people who don't look, talk, dress, vote, or act like you, you're probably not going to love heaven. <laughs> I like it. Talk to us. Yeah. Let me, let me just say this. Um, there's Republicans and Democrats in heaven. And yeah. libertarians and Green Party, like <laughs> this idea that one particular party or one particular, like we often even talk about, I've mentioned it before, worldviews are things we look through, not at, and yeah. they're kind of like glasses. I'm not usually aware of the fact that I'm wearing glasses, but it's informing what I'm seeing. And until something fogs them up, I'm usually not even aware that like, oh, I'm, wear I'm wearing glasses. I think we do that with our religiosity too. We assume like Western American post-enlightenment Christianity is the only way to see this verse or to understand this passage. And so anyone outside of that is doomed. And I think we do this in politics. I think we do this even with the way we look at different classes. And uh, you look at like Revelation 7 and talks about every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Yeah. Like, Oh, man, there's going to be, I think, a much greater diversity to heaven than maybe a lot of us have really considered. And that's a great thing. That's a beautiful thing. People across theological political aisles that you're probably right now thinking like, well, no, not them. Like, Oh goodness. Like Jesus seems to specialize in like welcoming the quote, not them crowd. And we preach on these passages, but then I think have a hard time actually yeah. believing that that's true. And I just think, yeah, I, I think it's an important thing to remember. I think we got time for two more. Oh, this boy. one, this one, when I read back on June 8th, when I read this one, this one kind of stopped me in my tracks. Good oh, wisdom here. Ready? No, not for a bad reason, for a convicting reason. Uh, he, he, Ian wrote, <laughs> uh, I think it's noteworthy that the disciples never asked Jesus how to preach. They asked him how to pray. Go for it. Oh boy. Who was it? Was it Spurgeon? 
He said something like, I would rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. Like there's something, I don't know, this feels so elementary, but we've been, we've actually been in this series um, about the Lord's prayer at community. And I, I've never really noticed how strange the disciples request would have been because at this point in Jesus' ministry, he would have done a lot of really cool things where like, if I'm honest, at that point, if I'm one of the disciples, I'd be like, hey, show me the multiplying food thing. Or can you walk us through the walking on water thing? Yeah, they, yeah. they seem to understand that something that was absolutely central to like the power and presence of the ministry of Jesus was prayer. And so yeah. I, I kind of flip that a little bit because I feel like a lot of times who we who we kind of glorify elevate are the people that are the most charismatic on stage with a microphone. But like Jesus and the people that like knew him best seem way less interested in like great speaking skills, which I think are good and helpful and to the glory of God. But if we're doing those things to the detriment or ignorance of our prayer life, then I think, I just think we've missed the mark. And I think, I think that's where the power is. You know, Charles Stanley said, man, someone only preaches as well as they pray. You Mm -hmm. can spend all day and all week and all month preparing a message. But if, if we're not like, like truly humbling ourselves before God, then, then really we're just sort of offering words, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I think why that one stopped me is because I believe that, and yet I'm really bad at it. Oh, same. <laughs> so, by the way, I'm bad at all these, by oh, the way. These are, all, these are all things I'm, like, working out in my own life. <laughs> all right, last one, and I love this one. You've said this on air, uh, <clears throat> or a variation of this. From June 7th, I propose we normalize celebrating when someone changes their mind when presented with new information. Lament, mm-hmm. listen, learn, love. Go ahead with that one. Yeah, I've, I've seen so many people lately especially in the last two weeks like humbly graciously say i didn't really get this till this year or this month and sometimes cancel culture just wants to like erase them entirely like well nope you delivered this sermon back in 2002 that said the contrary and i'm like man i i probably said a lot of stuff in 2002 that i don't hold to now and that might make people uncomfortable brian i think you're probably the same way you keep growing you keep learning and i think it's not to say that we completely dismiss like horrific, alienating things that our leaders in particular have said in the past. I'm not saying just make that evaporate, but I, do, I think we need to do a better job of celebrating like, hey, you're okay. And you still have a long way to go, but good for you. You're reading, you're listening, and you're in a different place now than you were a month ago, a year ago, a decade ago. And I think the more that we celebrate that, the more honestly it incentivizes people like, keep learning. It's okay to like shed some baggage and some weight from a, a previous way of thinking or a previous... belief you held really tightly to. And I think we need to honor that and celebrate that collectively. And I think the more that we do that, the more we'll see people willing to like learn and dig down deep. Awesome. Well, we didn't do the last one, but I think it's just funny. It's amazing how many Protestants are against protest. We're just going to leave that one there. (laughs) (laughs) You just had to end there, didn't you? You just had to get that one in. Hey, man, you you use your Facebook page really uh, pastorally well. So I just wanted to work through those. Thanks for letting us do that. And uh, you can find probably some of those up on our Facebook page. And uh, yeah, if you're a regular listener to our show, you've heard a lot of those things before, but I thought that would be fun to do. Well, coming up next, uh, an article on Fox News uh, from Jenna Bush Hager about what she learned from her grandfather, President George H.W. Bush. Coming up next here on the, uh, The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Friday afternoon. Uh, as a reminder, you can find us a couple different places. Find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we put uh, the articles we discuss, the interviews that we do. Uh, you can interact with us there, make comments, and let us know 
Uh, you can even put, make a review. Tell us what you think of the show, what you'd like to hear us talk about. Uh, maybe just what you'd like to hear us talk about, not what you think of the show. Uh, <laughs> you, you, have, you have no confidence in people's <laughs> kind words for the show, do you? <laughs> just don't tell us. We're fine. We're just going to keep yep, doing it. Yep. Uh, Twitter and Instagram. Find us at, uh, at Common Good Talk. Online at 1160hope.com and our podcast. You can get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, we're excited for the many of you who listen to the podcast. We are grateful uh, for that. Before we jump into this uh, article by Jenna Bush Hager about her grandfather, uh, Wonder and Ian, uh, I didn't I didn't prep you for this, but could you tell us a little bit about Thrivent? I feel like you've talked enough about Thrivent that you could do it off the top of your head. Oh, mind. I would be delighted, Brian. Okay, so I've been a Thrivent member for... I really should figure this out. Almost eight years, I think. They just changed wow. their logo, by the way, which was startling, but I like it. You can learn more at Thrivent.com. It's a Fortune 500 non-for-profit. It's been around for more than 100 years. It's a wonderful, for me at least, it's really hard to find organizations that both love Jesus and are good with money. They, they tend to sort of be at odds for some reason, and a lot of people just think Dave Ramsey and that's it. But they've been just a remarkable resource and help for me there. Plus, though, if you're looking for a career change, you can go to Thrivent.com slash careers and kind of peruse some of the options. You don't have to have a background in finance. You just got to like caring for people, come alongside them and helping. Plus, they've been providing a bunch of free webinars, everything from like how to homeschool in this new reality or how to lead through crisis. And next week, and we'll post this a couple of times on our Facebook page, Matthew Paul Turner is going to be reading from his very own book. It's a children's book. It's phenomenal. If you have little kids, Honestly, even if you don't have little kids, it's so good. I would highly recommend you check that out. You can find that on our Facebook page or on the Thriving page. Awesome. Well, uh, Jenna Bush Hager, one of the daughters of uh, George W. Bush, so granddaughter of President George H. W. Bush, uh, she opened up the other day, and I just thought this was this was somewhat timely. So uh, she opened up about the best advice her grandfather. I don't know what you had thought of George H. W. Bush. I know. I was probably when he was president, I was, you know, early teens, kind of 12, 13, 14. And for whatever you thought of George H.W. Bush, he certainly seemed like uh, a very honorable guy, a very honorable man. Uh, You could disagree with his politics, but he certainly seemed honorable. And so to get a window into kind of his advice that he gave his granddaughter, I thought was just interesting. I wonder which of these stand out to you. The article goes, During this time of political unrest and amid the coronavirus pandemic, uh, Jenna Bush Hager said that it's uh, that it's simple, small acts, that it's simple, small acts of kindness that really stay with people. Here's where she talked about her grandfather. She said, my grandpa, who lived until he was 94, I'll never forget. Well, first of all, he had this little list of rules that he lived by, and they're all really good ones. And Mm. then she started talking about what those rules are. Mm. Don't talk all the time. Listen to your mentors and friends and learn from them. Don't get down when your life takes a bad turn. Don't blame others for your setbacks. When things go well, always give credit to others. Don't talk all the time. (laughs) Listen to your friends and mentors and learn from them. Don't brag about yourself. Hmm. She then added, uh, he said, give someone a hand. Nobody likes an overbearing big shot. As you succeed, be kind to people. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid to shed a tear when your heart is broken or because a friend is hurting. And she went on to say, I actually have memorized these, which is kind of weird, she said. Mm. 
And the best-selling author remembered one night right before her grandfather died in 2018 when he told his granddaughter, don't forget to enjoy the game. Hmm. She said that really broke my heart into a thousand pieces because what he meant is life is meant to be enjoyed. So celebrate it. What a cool little uh, look into the life of somebody uh, who is the president of the United States, kind of his not just advice to his granddaughter, but how he said, you know, this is how I've lived my life. This is my set of rules. I wonder just kind of your overall impression of those and if any kind of common thread stood out to you in those. Yeah. You know, what stands out to me is that not a single one of them is about keeping tighter spreadsheets or better Mm. time management or I mean, and not, I don't mean to knock those things. Those things are important and often like better time management leads to more quality time with your family. So again, I'm not knocking them, but this is one of the, I know this wasn't the direction of the segment, but like you're a pastor too. And I'm sure you've been with people in the final, at least the final days of their life, if not the final moments, which is a very, very strange privilege and honor. And what I often find is that when people know that they're kind of nearing their time here on earth, there, there does sort of bubble to the surface this kind of wisdom where they're reflecting back on like, what are the things that I actually cared about or that I find to be the most valuable? Like when you think about someone, like by most capitalistic metrics, he became the president. You won, right? Like you, you did it. You're at the top. And for him to spend so much time about, you know, talking about not bragging, being kind to one another, not blaming others, don't talk all the time, like listen to mentors and friends. I don't know. There's just so much. And again, on the surface, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone that like disagrees with that whole list. Yes. Difficulty is in actually living that way. You know, you and I are, it's this, this is a talk show. So we, by nature, talk a lot, maybe too much. And there is just so much wisdom, I think, to someone looking back on their life who, who legitimately, regardless of what you think about his politics or his theology was very successful. That's right. say, yeah, amidst all the success, though, here are some of the things that really matter. And I just find that I find that so like it's this reminder that you're never too important to be kind. You know, we sometimes give like really important people a pass like, yeah, he was kind of a jerk. But, you know, he's pastor so and so or he leads this yeah. thing. And I don't know. I, I have really appreciated people like this having that perspective. Absolutely. To think of him saying, listen to your mentors and friends. Like, like you said, you're the president. Like you are the mentor. Right. <laughs> like you're, right. You're the friend. And uh, what I also really appreciated that is uh, that is such good advice, but so hard. I know, at least in my life to live out this one, he, when he said, don't blame others for your setback. But when things go well, always give credit to others. Yeah. So when things go bad, own it like you're in charge, like own what you've done. Don't blame others for your setbacks. But when you succeed, get, kind of bounce the credit, give it to other people. I think that is such a, a humble way to live. It reminds me of uh, Dave Ferguson, uh, your coworker, talking about being the life of a hero maker and right. what that looks like. Uh, but could you imagine what the world would be like if we actually did that? Well, when things go poorly in your have setbacks, own it. But when things go well, uh, deflect the praise to other people. That sounds really biblical to me. Well, and it's and it only really works if everyone's committed to it, right? When you when you yes. think about Paul in multiple places to his letters, the first century church, he's talking about mutual submission. Well, if only one of a two party system is doing all the submitting, the other person can quickly become a tyrant or can wield yeah. their power over you. Like there is this mutuality, this mutual submission that is so beautiful, but so rare to see, like even in marriages, especially in churches, most certainly 
in, you know, whole communities and states. Uh, but I think that there's, there's a reason, though, that Jesus and Paul and others spent so much time talking about its significance. Because when we do, like, we realize not only are we in this together, but there is, like, everyone succeeds. It's kind of the thing that Dave's even told me. He's like, man, people tend to want to, like, praise this idea of being a hero maker. And he's like, but honestly, when everyone lives that way, everyone succeeds more. Like, you think that you're taking a knock on your potential yeah. success it has the opposite effect and that's yeah. that's sort of how the, the upside down way of jesus tends to work yeah so i thought this was just a good article to kind of frame a little bit just think about the what's been going on the last couple of weeks and to hear george hw bush say don't be afraid to shed a tear when your heart is broken or because a friend is hurting mm. uh that kind of empathy and compassion uh would really be good in our culture right now well hopefully those are helpful you can find that at our uh, facebook page the common good radio show coming up next an article at the Gospel Coalition about something called theological triage. We're going to talk about that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope you're doing well on this Friday afternoon. A couple places you can find us. Find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we put articles that we've discussed, interviews we've done, uh, would love to hear your feedback there. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, online, 1160hope.com. Go there, if for no other reason than to see our pictures with our beautifully photoshopped white teeth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, lastly, you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, we're not sure how it helps us, but that certainly does help us. So go ahead and do that. We're grateful for those of you. Uh, who listen by the podcast. Uh, At the Gospel Coalition, an article entitled, written by Jeff Robinson, says, Theological Triage is for Church Members too." What's going on with this article about theological triage? Yeah, so I normally kind of skip over the narrative introduction to get right into the list, into the meat and potatoes, but I actually think the example he gives here at the beginning is really helpful. So if you'll allow me, I'll just read that. Go for it. And that'll allow you to get some time to get a pen and paper, and then we'll get into the meat and potatoes. (laughs) So he begins by saying he was waiting by my office door at 8 a.m. on Monday and I could tell he wasn't chipper. And anyone ever been there before, by the way, you're like, oh, I can already tell this is going to be rough. Church members who rise early to greet you without an invitation usually aren't. Pastors aren't usually chipper on Monday morning either. Guilty. Guilty. (laughs) But yeah, I'm not kidding. Or if you record on Thursdays, right. Then today. (laughs) I spoke to him as warmly as an early morning before the requisite two cups of coffee would allow. He got right to the point, quote. I'm here to talk about what you taught on the millennium yesterday in Sunday school. I've been in, I've been in church my whole life, and I'd never heard most of that before. That troubles me, and I want to talk some more about it. He was not quite hopping mad, but close. The view he'd never before encountered was amillennialism, which, by the way, we're not going to talk about for the bulk of this segment. Don't worry about it. Uh, I'd done my best to unpack it, clearly giving a biblical defense. I threw out a few names from church history who'd held that position, including Augustine, and the reformers, many in our congregation love the Reformation, so that cloud of witnesses would be ringers with them. This dear <laughs> brother held to dispensationalist premillennialism, and after we dialogued for a while, he admitted he'd never been challenged to consider another view of events surrounding Jesus' return. Neither his position nor mine changed during our mostly pleasant three-hour talk, but it accomplished my mission to teach him and our congregation how to, how to do theological triage and disagree graciously. That's kind of the money statement. 
It says oh. money, uh, money, many churches, <laughs> church disagreements over non-essential doctrines don't turn out that well. And I'll admit to having been a party to sinful dialogue over such matters myself. How can a pastor promote theological triage, a method of ranking doctrines as essential, secondary, and tertiary, first proposed by TGC Council Member Albert Moeller as a pathway to maturity and unity in the body? Here are three ways I've tried to do it over the years, which I do really, I know that there's probably going to be points of doctrine that I disagree with in this particular argument, but at Poplar Creek, I used to often talk about it as things in the open hand and closed hand. Yes. Where like closed hand for us, for example, was that God made the world. That's a that's pretty central. Like you, that's a really important part. But in the open hand, was it a literal seven days? Was it something else? Is it a young earth? Is it older than that? We can all disagree on that and still call this our church home. So I, I actually really appreciate his graciousness and also admitting like, yeah, there's been plenty of times that I have not been nearly as measured in my responses. Yeah, I, I've used, I like the open hand, closed hand. We've talked in terms of an umbrella. Like there mm-hmm. are things that we can disagree about and still be under the same umbrella, still right. be there together. Right. There are other things that kind of put us outside of the umbrella uh, from right. each other. The most fascinating part of this uh, article is that his talk on uh, dispensational premillennialism with this guy went for three hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that stood out to me too, man. <laughs> and he called it pleasant. <laughs> you're, you're not a three-hour meeting kind of guy? Uh, no, no, especially, <laughs> especially around topics of like, you know, dispensational premillennialism right there. Sure. Um, but this theological triage, I think I've never heard that phrase, but it is so important. The ranking of the doctrines as essential, secondary, or tertiary, open hand, close hand, under the umbrella, outside the umbrella, whatever picture you want to use, uh, is so important because I don't know if you found this, but oftentimes the emotions and the opinions are actually even um, people are more emotional over the what I think are secondary issues than they are usually around the essential issues. And it becomes really hard for people to separate essential versus secondary. And I think it's also important to help people understand uh, to call something secondary isn't to call it not important right. and not worth talking about. It's just exactly what you said. We can still be in. Uh, uh, you know, we can still be part of the same community. We can still have unity in the body of Christ, even while disagreeing. We can disagree without being disagreeable. Well, and that and that requires a lot of pastoral wisdom and insight too, because there there's certainly an offensive way to make someone's issue feel less than if it doesn't feel like a priority to you. And I think yeah. that's that's where like a shepherding heart can be really helpful. If you you know if you got six PhDs and somebody shows up at eight AM and they're like oh I'm gonna demolish this guy like that's not a good pastoral posture <laughs> even even if this you know even if you don't think this issue is all that important someone in your flock does and I think that that's that's an important needle to thread I think absolutely so he goes on to make a list of three because the Gospel Coalition loves their lists which is why you often reference them it is exactly I almost put a Gospel Coalition one in here today that was a list of seven <laughs> <laughs> so holy of you Brian. He said, here are three ways that uh, this guy, Jeff Robbins, I think was his name, has tried to do this to help people walk this pathway of essential, uh, secondary and tertiary. So, number one, he says, as a pastor, he says, make it part of your preaching. Yeah. He said it's the most natural way to help your congregation grow in handling differences maturely and peacefully. Not every hill is one to die on. So you must help them see when it's time to go to war and when it's time for diplomacy, for example, Uh, He says, when preaching through 1 Thessalonians 4, briefly present the major view of Christ's second coming, 
Go free, defend your conviction, making clear that good Christians have long disagreed on the matter. Or when on baptism, defend your view, but respectfully and briefly, but set forth views held by other evangelicals. Show your congregation that it's possible to disagree without disparaging those with whom you disagree. Yeah, that's really important. I, I would say, too, is for leaders, get in the habit of saying good Christians have disagreed on this. Yeah. I think the word good is really important. A lot of times we'll, we'll say, well, wow, Christians have disagreed about this. And the subtext can sometimes be, yeah, but they're heretics, though. Like the, the ones that disagree with us, they're they're no longer they're yeah. no longer in the fold. The second one, actually, for me, couples well with the first one. Number two, consider teaching a class on it. I've mentioned before years ago, I did a like a 13 week series on basic Christian doctrine which unearthed a bunch of stuff. It's what we did. We taught it in the morning. And then in the evening, I'd invite scholars and professors to unpack that for a couple hours. And we made it a potluck. And it was awesome. Inviting people that are way smarter than me into the fold. So we, I taught it for a half hour in the morning. Got all the juices flowing. Said, hey, come back. Bring a friend. Bring a dish. And we're just going to like eat and dive into this. And they were scheduled to go like two hours in the evening. And they would often go, three, three and a half, just because people had really good questions. And I, I appreciated awesome. that. So he kind of explains a little bit about what he did. Oh, it looks like a 12 week series. That's funny. Either way, I don't think I need to explain that anymore. But sure. like offering classes, I know in some like really hip churches, sometimes a class feels antiquated. I think it's really important, especially if you're if you're noticing a lot of buzz around a certain topic or issue, like bring someone in from a local college and let them let them really lay into your uh, really invest in your church. I think that's important. Excellent. And last one, quickly, number three, emphasize a loving tone and enduring patience. Yes. He says, if mis- misapplying scripture were an Olympic sport, Job's friends would have been perennial gold medalists. <laughs> uh, and so later on, he says, uh, a former jur- journalism colleague exemplified Peter and Paul's call for wedding grit with grace in theological engagement. One of our coworkers at his newspaper was a Jehovah's Witness, and my friend often engaged her with the Bible. Uh, to my knowledge, he never won her over, but I'll never forget what she told me. She said, I've never had a talk with another Christian who was so kind to me and who actually listened to me. Wow. And so wow. Uh, this is helpful because they, they then go on to use the example of reopening the churches and mm-hmm. different opinions. But man, the conversation, and we should have this at another time about uh, just race race relations in our culture and the image of God, where does that fall on the spectrum? And what does that mean? How we talk about it, I think is super important. Um, but this idea of theological triage, I think is something we as Christians just need to grow in understanding right. how to disagree while not being disagreeable. Right. Uh, well, we're glad that you're joining us today. Coming up next, we're going to talk about a tweet that I saw that I'd love for us to discuss. It's next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope Coming up this hour, we're going to listen to a video from Tony Evans, and then we're going to discuss uh, new quarantine habits that many of us have formed through this pandemic. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Friday. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us. Reminder, some of the particulars, find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, uh, online at 1160hope.com, and you can find our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. Grateful for those of you uh, who do that. It does help us out. I got to be honest, I just had this moment when I said Happy Friday, where I then thought, is it Friday? Even though is I've it, been be, is it because Friday. you preached yesterday? Is that why? No, I'm just off, man. And every day being from home, uh, it's just off. Yeah. 
We're going to get back into this. You're, you're in good company, man. You're not alone. I know. But happy Friday. Hopefully you're set for a good weekend and uh, summer is upon us. Well, I was scrolling through Twitter. This one's about, uh, I don't know, a week ago. Uh, and I wanted to read a tweet that caught my eye and uh, get some of your feedback on this. This is from somebody who has a show on the station here, Dr. Robert Jeffers. Many people know him. He is a pastor in, I believe, Dallas area, a huge church in Dallas. Also, um, very prominent on cable news channels. He's often uh, has kind of the ear of President Trump. He has a big voice in the evangelical world. So Dr. Robert Jeffers, uh, he tweeted this. Uh, the only cure for the racism in America is a changed heart that comes from trusting in Jesus Christ. To try and heal racial divisions without that changed heart is like trying to cure cancer with a Band-Aid. All right. So, Ian, I've put that tweet. Uh, you didn't know it was coming. I put that tweet in your lap. I'd like to start on the positive. What do you agree with from that tweet? What is the part of that tweet where you're like, yeah, no, I could sign on to that part of it? Yeah, it's getting at like the deeper heart issue of what often drives racist, bigoted, hateful behavior. Right. Like we and we've often, I think, taught and preached probably that Christianity, the gospel is not just about behavior modification, right? It's not moralistic therapeutic deism where it's just like, hey, if you sort of tweak this behavior, tweak that behavior, there's something in our heart that needs to be redeemed and healed probably consistently depending on your view of salvation. I think that is probably part of what he's getting at is like there's, there's more than just legislation at play here. There's something in our hearts that we can't heal ourselves of, to be honest. And I think that's part of what he gets at. Like, Trusting Jesus is one of the one of the ways toward one of the ways the way towards healing what is broken and toxic in us. And without dealing with that, uh, we're ne- we're probably never really going to see like the eradication of this issue that we see. Yeah, I think that all of us as Christ followers, if you're a Christ follower, we would say that ultimately Jesus transforms hearts, and right. uh, that that we need a work of Jesus, and uh, that we're that's what we're praying for, and that. Um, you know, at a deep level, like he says, a changed heart that comes through Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit is ultimately the cure for what ails us, whether it be racism or other things. Uh, but there's part of this tweet that's probably uh, problematic, I would guess. And tweets can be problematic because they're short, right? Sure. Like you can't sure. really expand. Uh, but what do you feel like is either problematic or you would like to hear him expound on or is missing from this tweet? Well, if you'll let me, Brian, I would love to read a little bit from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1966 convocation, if that would be all right. Well, I mean, how with that kind of intro, how could I? Like, no. Yeah, no kidding. Here's, <laughs> here's, here's what he said in 1966. It may be true that morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me. Religion and education will have to do that, but it can restrain him from lynching me. So maybe that's not obvious how that links to Pastor Jefferson's tweet. I, I think to say, listen, we can't we can't be worrying about legislation because ultimately it's about trusting Jesus. I do think it is ultimately about trusting Jesus. That's why I'm a pastor. That's why I've given my entire right. life to that. However, there are systems at work that are oppressing brothers and sisters in a way that we can't simply preach them to stop. 
that to advocate for the eradication of systems and structures that have left other image bearers of God as less than and mm-hmm. oppressed and marginalized, it is, I believe, our sacred gospel duty to speak to those things and not just simply say, well, I mean, join me for my next series starting in July where we're going to talk about these. Keep doing that, by the way. And it is ultimately Jesus Christ that heals the broken heart. However, and I, and I, it's probably obvious at this point, I, I do kind of align here with uh, Dr. King. Yeah. It is a both and. I think it was Carl Barth who said, you know, do do theology with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. It's it's well, not good. it's not just about burying our heads deeper in scripture. Keep reading scripture. Please don't I don't want any of these to be sound bites of people like you right. said don't read the Bible. No, we need <laughs> we need to be deeply formed by scripture. But as we're formed by scripture, our orthodoxy will inform our orthopraxy. Like what we learn and know in our head and heart will transform the way we live with our hands and feet. It has it has to be that way. And I think James, you know, the half brother of Jesus, who has some wisdom to this, says, don't just be hearers of the word. Do it. If there's injustice in the world or your neighborhood or in your home, by the power of Jesus Christ, do something about it. Like that's that's part of what it means to be Jesus people in the world. And part of what's tricky about the tweet for me is that, you know, a lot of Christians are perfectly comfortable working towards legislative changes when it comes to the issue of abortion. But when it comes to racism, we'll say. Well, that's it's that's ultimately a hard issue. So there's nothing else we can do there. That that to me is problematically inconsistent. Uh, I think that is well put because I think abortion is a good example because um, many of us, you've if you've listened to this show for any amount of time, you're fully aware what Ian and I think about abortion and that our longing to see it uh, eradicated, to use your word. Um, but none of us would say. Uh, I think we would say that if our if there was a revival that broke out in our nation, if people uh, turned to Jesus, that uh, that hearts would be changed and the abortion issue would begin to change. But we would also say we're going to argue in the courts about it. We're going to protest about it. The March for Life. We're going to pray about it. We're going to preach about it. All and so right. we don't take that stance. Like you said, I think the best thing that you said there was. Uh, it's not an either or it's a both. And like we are, we are praying for changed hearts. We are preaching towards changed hearts. We want our own hearts changed. And we believe that comes as you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, at the same time, we work uh, to, uh, as Dr. King said there, like the laws can still make sure that people aren't wronged and, uh, the vulnerable aren't hurt. And that's kind of the point. And so, um, yeah, it isn't an either, or I, I don't want to, this could be touchy, but why do you think people go either, or it seems like around this issue, but say not the abortion issue or others. Is huh. there a, a, any thought to that for you? That's a good question. I think probably part of it, if I had to try to put myself in their shoes, maybe it's a lack of awareness of the depth and intensity of the issue, maybe like they're maybe they're they feel like there's an urgency in one area and like another that doesn't feel as immediate. You know, maybe this is kind of like, like even the triage thing that we were talking about earlier. Um, I mean, if we were to pick apart the tweet and again, to be fair, tweets are they're intended to be sound bites. It's not a lecture. It's not a manifesto. But what he says there is to try to heal racial divisions. I would say, yeah, ultimately, those divisions actually won't be healed. But there's a lot of systemic things right now that are harming people that we should care about. 
the ultimate healing. And I think, and again, to, you know, to give him credit were the parts that I agree to put all of our hope in legislation would also be, I think, wrong right. and foolhardy to say, man, if we just pass this law, is this issue or any issue, this will ultimately heal all that's broken in our world. I think that extreme, and maybe that's what he's getting at. That isn't, that isn't the whole story either. It's why we keep saying both and, but to simply say, Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to advocate for these things because that's not ultimately going to heal the heart. Like, yeah, yeah. But it's, it might save lives though, or it might help affirm dignity where a dignity has not been affirmed. We should also care about those things. Uh, not just whether or not someone's heart is healed. It's a, it's a both end. Yeah. And I would say, uh, just as we wouldn't say that laws are the end goal, that they are ultimately what bring about good, they, they still are important, namely right. because we still live in a world that is sinful and broken. And so uh, those are important. We'd love to hear your feedback. Just a, a plug, Robert Jeffers. Uh, Dr. Robert Jeffers has a show called Pathway to Victory that airs every weekday here at 8.30 a.m., 8.30 till 9 a.m., here on AM 1160 uh, WILL. So you can hear Dr. Robert Jeffers there. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to hear from another well-known pastor. We're going to hear some audio from Dr. Tony Evans coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for joining us today. It's almost the weekend. Happy Friday. Hope you're having a great day. And uh, looking forward to a good weekend. As always, if you're looking for something to do this week, hop on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show, or Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. You can also go online, 1160hope.com, or get our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, We couldn't encourage you enough to go back and listen from the past two weeks uh, to so many pastors and ministry leaders from the Chicagoland area that we've had the opportunity to interview and talk to and just listen and Mm -hmm. learn from. Uh, go back. And if you ask me, which is my favorite, I would say that is impossible to choose. I, they've, uh, uh, they have all been wonderful. So we would love for you to go back. Would, would now be a them. weird time to plug my website. Cause I did organize, I did organize all the clips from, did you really? from different pastors in Chicagoland. Yeah. And I put them on one. Okay. If you, if you go to iansimkins.com and just click blog, there's one there that has all the, uh, all the links gathered for us. Is is uh is that free there or is there a charge at iansimpkins.com for that? <laughs> uh, I don't want to say. No, yeah, of course. Of course, for the for the three of you that will be visiting, it's 100% free. <laughs> oh, I'm glad that you did that. That really I I can't uh over I can't say it enough of how how helpful just personally for me and I know you feel this way these interviews yes. have been. Uh, they've really shaped a lot of my thinking uh, as we navigate all this. So I'd encourage you to go and listen to those. Well, uh, in in the spirit of listening, uh, a well-known, one of the most well-known pastors, Dr. Tony Evans, uh, Texas. Yeah, down in Texas, I believe. Uh, Dr. Evans, have you ever heard Tony Evans speak, by the way, live? Oh, my goodness. Yes. It's yeah. unbelievable. He, he, for me, when I look back on on some old notes, when I was like first getting invited to like speak other places, I actually, I listened to a disproportionate number of his sermons. Did you? Yes. Oh, that's funny. I remember hearing him at a CareNet banquet, uh, and it was, uh, I was ready to just throw, for one, because at the end of those talks, they, they asked for money to support a fundraising banquet. Right. Uh, 
Uh, and when he was done talking, I just wanted to hand my wallet over to people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, and like, and also it. hang up my microphone. I was like, why do I even talk? You, you I feel that way. <laughs> I feel that way when I hear Tony Evans. I feel that way when I hear uh, Andy Stanley <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and some others. Uh-huh. Matt Chandler, I'm sure, is on your list. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, when I hear some Ian Simpkins, I'm like, I'm okay. out. Okay. All right. Come on. That's enough of that. <laughs> so here's what I want to do. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans was interviewed on Fox News the other day around the pandemic and also uh, all that's been going on in our country since the uh, since the tragic murder of George Floyd and all the protests that ensued. Uh, so I want to hear what I want you all to hear what Dr. Tony Evans had to say, and then Ian and I will respond to it. Let's listen to Dr. Tony Evans. First of all, we have to understand that the root of the problem, Second Chronicles 15 says, because there had been a spiritual departure, there was no peace in the land. And then it says in verse six, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. So we're starting in the wrong place. You see, if God is your problem, it doesn't matter what programs you put in place, who you elected, all that becomes secondary because if God is your problem, only God is your solution. And that means it has to be spiritually driven first on the issues of righteousness and justice. If it wasn't for the failure of the church, in particular the evangelical church, that supported practically and theologically a division that should not have taken place, we wouldn't even have this problem. So since the church helped cause it, the church needs to be in front fixing it. God is not going to skip the church house to fix the White House. And I know we're all in this political season, but unless the body of Christ, those who take God seriously, the Lordship of Jesus Christ seriously, and the scriptures seriously. Uh, Psalm eighty nine fourteen says, from God's throne comes righteousness and justice. So you don't seesaw between the two. Yes, we should protect the life of the unborn in the womb, but we have to be just to the life once born to the tomb. And you don't seesaw back and forth. These are Siamese twins that are to walk side by side, linked up at the hip. So there's a three-point process we're challenging churches to do. Number one, we need a national solemn assembly. That's a sacred gathering to invite God back into the culture. Because as long as he's marginalized, you won't be able to solve this. Secondly of all, we need Christians to be public Christians, not private saints. This is not this is not Christianity in the church house. That's one of the reasons God has allowed the pandemic. He's allowed the pandemic, the health pandemic, to get us out of the church house so that we can go public with our faith and not be secret agent Christians. And then thirdly, we must be unified in good works. People must see us adopting schools, adopting police stations, adopting nursing homes, and doing it collectively. When God sees unity, according to John 17, he, he, we'll get it attention when he gets get his attention he'll get back involved when he gets back involved then we'll be see healing in our land until the church steps up nothing will work it'll only be a band-aid all right that's dr tony evans and i think if i know you well enough i keep guessing on you i think you're gonna love some of that and and not like some of that so let me uh take in any direction you want dr tony evans. <laughs> oh man i knew you were gonna say that it it is so strange because it feels like this mental zigzag i'm like Yes. Yes. Ah, nope. I don't know about that. Okay. We're back again. Yes. I like that. Ah, I don't. So, and he even ends with that imagery of a bandaid, doesn't he? Which is, yes. Did you do that on purpose? Is this like a thematic arch? I did not. I should have, but I did not. Yeah. Okay. So a, a couple of things, the idea of whatever we do being spiritually driven, I think that's really smart. And again, as, as Tony Evans is 
second to none at doing when he talks about the church house and the White House. Like you can just picture people standing up and cheering. Like, there's just a certain like rhythm and cadence to how he preaches. Um, right. I will say I'm trying to work in reverse now. I don't think that the coronavirus was like God's sneaky way of like better mobilizing the church. I don't I don't buy into that particular theological nuance like he gave it or I think even, you know, Dr. Evans said allowed it uh, so that the church could be mobilized like that to me feels maybe a little too reductionistic. Um, but he, the idea of being public Christians, not private saints, I think is a really good one. The caveat I would give is that maybe some people are a little too public. And mm. and what I mean by public maybe is like more showy. You know, remember, remember when when smartphones were really becoming a thing and it felt like everyone who went on a missions trip had to take a selfie with one of the kids at the orphanage and then post it on social media. And you're like, just go love the kids in that country. You don't have to, you know, create some like social media buzz around it. I do feel like we're seeing some of that where it's, it's a lot of maybe humble bragging about like their level of activism. So I, that's not really what I'm talking about, but like yeah, letting, letting our Christianity, letting our theology actually, I think it's Cornell West that talks about, um, justice is what love looks like in public. Like that's, mm. that's how it shouldn't just be me and my family and my house and us praying a prayer and going to heaven when we die. It should, uh, it should affect the way that we actually live out the world. And I do like that idea of being, uh, spiritually driven. I think that's a really important way of thinking about it, but it doesn't mean again, to kind of harken back to the previous segment that like laws and legislations shouldn't be things that Christians care about. Now, again, the caveat for that is I think some people have probably too politicized the pulpit. You and I have talked about that. I think that yep. can also be really problematic. And by politicized, I really mean like it's become too partisan. That's not great. Um, but I, yeah, I'll stop there. I want to hear what you think. Yeah. I, it's really funny. The longer you and I do this show, the more we tend to agree. And I kind of know where you're going to go. <laughs> yeah, that's scary. It's really funny. I thought the most challenging part and the thing I think that people really have to wrestle with is he, he laid the blame uh, for the racial divide of our country at the feet of the church and said, therefore, it's at the feet of the church to to lead the way to fix it, uh, which I think, uh, you know, he'd probably be a little more nuanced than that. But but. You know, a lot of people, I think, kind of kind of sit up and go, really, is it the church? And I think if you look back through history of our of our country, uh, the church has been complicit into a lot of the things. And so uh -huh. yep. now this call to all right, church, engage, you know, kind of make up for it, kind of make it right, uh, whether it be through advocating for laws like we talked about, or it's through challenging your people or it's a boldness to speak truth, I think. Uh, that was that was the most powerful part for me, where he didn't just say, "Hey, the church needs to lead because the church." Blah blah. It was, "Hey, the church had a lot to do with this yeah. happening in the first place." Well, and I do uh, I do think sometimes sometimes Christians we ex we too much expect governments to do what we've been unable to inspire our congregations to do. Yeah, like things that should be ours to do. Like, like no, no, let them handle it. And I think that they're. I think in that regard, Doctor Evans is spot on. Absolutely. So hopefully you enjoyed that. You can re-listen to it at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit more about the coronavirus and particularly this article that talks about new habits many of us have formed by being in the quarantine for so long. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Excited to have you joining us uh, on this Friday afternoon. Oh, remember, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Find us online at 1160hope.com, and you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, we are grateful. That does help us. We're thankful for those of you who have done that. Uh, so the quarantine, right? It feels like things are opening up, but uh, we've all gone through months and months of primarily being at home. Uh, and there was an article at Vox that says quarantine has changed us and it's not all bad. Here are eight new habits people want to keep post lockdown. So kind of saying, hey, all of us have been changed. Uh, but this new normal that's been the last couple of months, there's some things that we want to keep as a part of our lives before we go into the list of eight. I'm wondering, Ian, which one is, is there one for you where you go, you know what? I'm excited to get back into the world and do stuff, but here's one thing I want to continue doing. Oh man. Walks with my boys. I've been ending every day, just taking the two of them. It gives uh, my wife a little, a little breather from the day and we'll, we just go for a walk and it's been lovely. Like I've really, I like watching their friendship develop. I like just the chance to just be, I mean, the weather's been nice. So that's, that's certainly kind of helped, but that's become like my, my favorite part of the day is just, just going for a walk with the two of them. Yeah. I, I think for me, it's much the same. Really? Uh, it's, it's just the amount of family time. I think it's the, um, I have found myself especially enjoying uh, all of us being home at night and that yeah. with, with older kids that, that was because of my schedule and their schedule was becoming less the norm. Uh, and that's kind of something I've been like, man, I want to fight for that. Not every night, but, uh, that kind of work becomes uh, much more normal that we're all home in the evening time. So yeah, my my two year old was clubbing like crazy. So it's been nice. It's been nice to have him back. <laughs> have him back. <laughs> uh, this uh, the article goes this way. He said, "I asked Vox readers to tell me which specific changes they want to maintain as they emerge from quarantine and stumble their way to a new normal." More than a hundred people responded from across the globe from the United States to the United Arab Emirates and from Portugal to Pakistan. Some broad trends leaped, leaped, leapt, leaped out in the responses. Below are the most common. I just realized I don't know when to use leaped and when to use leapt. Yeah, hmm. same. No idea. So let's go through these. A nice list of eight. Uh, nice kind of close, getting close to a close of a show. Let's do a nice list. So here's number one. Okay. Uh, reducing consumerism. This hmm. was by far the most popular response. Many people told me that they want to spend less money shopping for new material goods like gadgets and clothes. A long period of being shut in and not spending as much has led to the realization that so much of our consumer behavior is about instant gratification, not lasting happiness. Uh, and several people, it says, also noted they plan to eat out less often at restaurants. Eating in during the lockdown has enabled them to save money and discovered a taste for a home-cooked meal. So they said by far the number one answer was being less consumeristic. See, and I, I'm such a skeptic. I'm such a Debbie Downer. Like the operative word there is plan. We plan to eat out less. And yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know, my my sense is like, mm, let's check in a year from now and see if that actually happened. Uh, I like this. Number two, slowing down and putting less pressure on ourselves. Being stuck in our houses has made many of us realize that we've spent years rushing through life, pressuring ourselves to get the, quote, right jobs and attend the, quote, right events, even if all that status chasing was making us miserable, which, again, in many different ways, we've talked about a lot on the show. Some of this, like, 
obsessive hunger to improve or climb some ladder. Goes on to say some younger respondents told me they want to put less career pressure on themselves because they now realize work is not what matters most in life. A couple of older adults told me they've been considering retiring before COVID-19 came around. The pandemic pushed them to finally do it. And even for some who are already retired, the slower pace of life created by a lockdown comes as a relief. I think probably a lot of people can relate to that. Absolutely. Number three, prioritizing family and friends. Uh, mm. Kind of gets at what you and I were both just talking about. When the chips are down, you see who really shows up for you. Several people told me they've come to appreciate the family members and friends who've been there for them during this tough time. And that mm. long after the coronavirus dies, dies down, it's this group that they want to re-up their investment in. Right. Others emphasize that the bizarre, unprecedented nature of this global pandemic has allowed them to reach out to people they haven't spoke to in ages. That's Suddenly, right. they found themselves on Zoom with estranged family members or old college roommates halfway around the world. So this desire uh, to continue in these close relationships is something people are walking out of this pandemic with. Yeah. Number four says ethical action and activism in our highly interconnected world. This was perhaps the most encouraging set of responses. People told me that the global health crisis has shown them how interconnected we all are and that they want to keep doing more for others after the pandemic ends. They're donating more to charitable causes, trying harder to reduce their carbon footprint and engaging in more political activism. And again, we're seeing a lot of one particular kind of activism, but I do think that there's going to be a continued like long rise in this kind of awareness, I guess, of to use their word interconnectedness, which I think ultimately I I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, this next one's just uh, I landed on this one just to feel guilty. Uh, (laughs) Number five, people want to. This is a list of eight things at Vox that uh, respondents said they want to continue doing. Uh, after even after the pandemic, as the quarantine kind of lets up. Number five, exercising daily. This was another very common response. Many people who weren't previously into fitness have been getting into running, yoga, and other activities as a way to cope with the lockdown. And they've been astounded at how much daily exercise can improve life. Desperate for any excuse to leave the house, I've finally been able to keep up a daily exercise routine. It's incredible how much a difference even a short jog can make said Katie Reynolds, a Vox reader in the U.S. She said, my sleep is better, my brain feels clearer, my mood is improved, and it feels easier to keep up other good habits. Definitely we'll be keeping this habit at least until there's ice on the ground again. (laughs) Yeah, right. That for me is the big caveat. Like it was really, if you remember the beginning of all this, the weather was miserable. Yeah, we had snowstorm right away. Yeah. Right. And like my house is roughly 12 square feet and I got two little ones and everyone's going crazy. And I'm like, man, if it was nice out, this would be a game changer. So, so for now, to like, like go on walks or for a quick jog, I've been really, really immensely grateful. Uh, number six, baking, vegetarian cooking, and growing herbs. Yes, the sourdough obsession is real. Several people wrote to me in glowing terms about their starters. I believe I'll be keeping my sourdough starter. It's like another family pet at this point, said Matthew Schreiber, who lives in New Orleans. In addition to baking bread, people also mentioned they plan to keep fermenting things like sauerkraut and generally cooking more of their own meals so they can eat less processed food. Specifically, people want to cook more vegetarian meals and lean away from meat eating. The impulse seems to be coming not only from the fact that there are meat shortages in some U.S. grocery stores, but also from the knowledge that a live animal market in China may have given rise to the coronavirus and that the giant factory farms that supply 99% of America's meat are a pandemic risk too. Have you been finding that? Well, two-part question. Are are you guys feeling like you're going to cook at home more? And secondly, are you in any way veering away from meat? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I would, I would say 
I, I, we really have enjoyed the home meals, the, the being together as a family for dinner. Uh, but no, I'm, uh, nothing's going to veer me away from my meat. So <laughs> I hope, I hope that becomes a soundbite somewhere. No, <laughs> number seven, spending, <laughs> spending more time in nature, getting outdoors has been for many of us, a crucial way to maintain our sanity during lockdown. In particular, parents have wanted to give their cooped up kids a chance to run around and release some energy. Uh, I've developed a morning routine that involves quiet listening on the porch with the kids. It's a great way to start out calm with the wild little ones. Other ones are simply enjoying the chance to reconnect to the natural world. Its rhythms and resilience can help to calm our anxious minds. All right, last one. Here we go. Number eight, working from home if possible. Lockdowns across the globe led to millions of people suddenly working from home. And guess what? Turns out we can do many jobs just as well in the comfort of our own homes. And then it says parenthetically and sweatpants as in our offices. Of course, for many people, this is not an option. It's a privilege to be able to work from home, which, again, Brian and I have wanted to say repeatedly. We realize Mm -hmm. there's tons of people that haven't been able to. And we want to recognize the privilege there. That said, the myth that remote work isn't as practical as nine to five office job has been proven to be just that a myth. Some are finding that working from home actually offers unique benefits. I'm, uh, I'm a counseling psychologist and I've been doing client work remotely. I think I will keep doing it remotely. It's quite convenient, said Rafael Doval Santos. My practice also gets to be more global and my new clients are not just within my city anymore. Several respondents said they love no longer having to commute to work. It means no pollution, more sleep and less stress. I don't know that I've necessarily found the last two of that list to be true. Right, right. Um, and it is a little, this is this is going to sound strange because I've certainly appreciated the less commute and pollution and all that. But like during my drive time, that was when I listened to a number of dedicated podcasts that I, I actually uh, had been yeah. finding a harder time, like fitting in time to listen to some of those things. I don't know if there's any like, are there any things from this that you feel like you're really missing that once this is like fully lifted and we're out of it that you're ready to go back to? Yeah, that that podcast one is actually really interesting with the commute. I miss being able to sit at a restaurant or a Starbucks with other people <laughs> and just mm, talk to them yeah, and just have conversation. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things about the pastor about being a pastor. So uh, they they do write one thing at the end here. It says, finally, it's important to note that if you don't emerge from this pandemic with any great new habits, that's absolutely all right. Sometimes right. surviving is an accomplishment in itself. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That list is interesting. We're going to put it up on our Facebook page, or we already have from Vox.com. One of the things people want to keep doing, uh, even as quarantine starts to end. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show the way we always end every show, uh, with some interweb insanity. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. That music can only mean one thing. It's the end of the show, the end of the week. Interweb Insanity, where our producer, Keith Conrad, he finds us stories from the Internet uh, that are crazy, that are funny, sometimes a little strange. We don't know them before we read them. So we uh, find these out right alongside with you. So, Ian, first one. We should post some of these to our Facebook page. I don't know that we've ever done that, but every once in a while, there's an article that I feel like everyone, everyone should be able to participate in. This one's out of England, says bald men may be hit harder by coronavirus, scientists fear. Oh. Bald men appear to be at high risk of suffering severe coronavirus symptoms, a risk factor being named after the Big Apple man, who was the first U.S. doctor to die of the contagion, according to a new report. We really think that baldness is a perfect predictor of severity, Professor Carlos Wam- Wambier of Brown University told The Telegraph of studies appearing to show strong associations. The link emerged during studies 
trying to show why men suffer worse from COVID-19 than women. Scientists now believe that androgens, male sex hormones like testosterone, may boost the ability of coronavirus to attack cells. The same androgens are also understood to be behind baldness, making it a signal of vulnerability to the disease. She's bald! <laughs> mean bald? What do you think I mean, bald? Bald! Bald bald! <laughs> She's bald! She's bald, Jerry! Wow. That is interesting. Who knew? Not me. Next one's out of California. Steve Carell helped kill a bizarre office storyline. Oh, I'm here for this one. <laughs> uh, Steve Carell didn't just star as Michael Scott in The Office. He also had some clout as a producer. And he used that clout to help stop a bizarre subplot in the episode where Jim and Pam wed at Niagara Falls. According to the book The Office, the untold story of the greatest sitcom of the 2000s. The strange tale is broken down uh, in Collider. Uh, as originally written, the character of Dwight was supposed to succumb to a suicide gene of sorts that drew him to the famous falls. Oh, he would have been on horseback thanks to a whole other ditched plot line involving an attempt by Roy to break up the wedding. Dwight would survive, but the horse would go over the falls. What? Showrunner Greg Daniels loved the idea, but others hated it. However, it was apparently Carell's input that finally killed the idea after a table read. They are trying to make me an escape code. That was fascinating. Remember when we did a segment on a theology of the office? Fabulous uh, segment with that guy from Think Christian. Think yeah. Christian. I get their emails every week now, and I, I love them. Too. Anyway, okay. Out of Australia, distillery recalls gin bottles mistakenly filled with hand sanitizer. Oh, no. I See, I knew this was going to happen. A distillery in Australia said a recall successfully recovered all gin bottles that were mistakenly sold as liquor when they were actually filled with hand sanitizer. The Apollo Bay Distillery in Victoria said nine bottles labeled SS Casino Gin were sold during the weekend at the Great Ocean Road Brewhouse in Apollo Bay. The distillery said the bottles were mistakenly put up for sale as gin, but were actually filled with hand sanitizer containing glycerol and hydrogen peroxide. A spokeswoman said the bottles were identified by a lack of a seal or shrink wrapping. To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Next one's out of my home state of New Jersey. Please don't try to take a selfie with a bear, New Jersey town urges residents. Hmm. Sounds like a good uh, thing. The Winslow Township Police Department went to Facebook Wednesday to alert residents of two bear sightings and to warn them against attempting to snap a pic with the grizzly creatures. Please do not. I repeat, do not attempt to take selfies with the bear, the department wrote. Black bears are generally not known to be a threat to humans. According to National Geographic, American black bears can grow to be five to six feet long and weigh anywhere between 200 to 600 pounds. The department went on to give advice such as not feeding the bears or approaching the animals. It even recommended families with homes in areas where black bears have been found in the past to have a bear plan. Huh. It includes an escape route and planned use of whistles and air horns. Hey, boo-boo, let's see what we got in this picnic basket. It is good to have a plan laid bare for everyone to see. I think that's <laughs> smart. That's smart. Nice. Okay. Don't encourage me. <laughs> it was good, it was good. Lastly, out of Florida, ticked off turkey chases Amazon delivery driver away from home. One Amazon delivery driver says his friends always joked he'd be one of the drivers that ends up on TV one day. And due to a recent unusual wild experience, that's coming true. Gary Cervera. Cervera? Cervera. I'm going with Cervera. He's probably not listening. Who usually delivers <laughs> on his routes in the Sanford area was making deliveries in DeBerry Saturday. And he came across a ticked off turkey. I love that it keeps using that phrase. The driver noticed two turkeys walking alongside a house where he had to make a delivery. But he didn't think much of them, even when one got closer. 
Rivera tossed a French fry toward the feisty animal, but it wasn't nearly as interested in food as it was the driver. Rivera noticed the animal slowly following him. <laughs> as you can clearly see in the doorbell camera video shared by the homeowner, after dropping off the package, the delivery driver said he took out his phone and started walking faster only for the turkey to pick up speed as well. Then came the chase. Cerveza said he always leaves the side door open and that uh, days and that day his shortcut paid off as he was able to escape the turkey by jumping into his van quickly and shutting the door. Feels like a great way to end the show and end the week. And uh, it's been a good week. If we can encourage you, if you did not hear the interviews we've done throughout the course of the week, go find the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts and you can listen to those interviews. Uh, They were really helpful through the course of the week. Hey, man, have a great weekend. Thanks, man. You too. uh, We hope all of you have a great weekend out there. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.